Welcome to the Ecom Breakthrough Podcast. Are you ready to unlock the full potential and growth in your business? You've already crossed seven figures in sales, but the challenge is knowing how to take your business to the next level. Join Josh Hadley, an eight-figure e-com business owner and investor, as he interviews highly successful business owners. Get ready, because you're going to learn specific actions you can take today to help your business reach its full potential and leave a lasting impact on the world. Welcome to the Ecom Breakthrough Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Hadley, where I interview the top business leaders in e-commerce. Past guests include Kevin King, Michael E. Gerber, the author of The E-Myth, and Roland Frazier. Today, I'm speaking with Scott Dietz, founder and CEO of the Northbound Group. And we are going to be talking a lot about the top 12 deal mistakes that you can make when you're trying to sell or considering selling your business. This episode is brought to you by the Ecom Breakthrough Consulting, where I help seven-figure companies grow to eight figures and beyond. Listen, Scott, I started my business back in 2015 and grew it to an eight-figure brand in seven years. But I made a lot of mistakes along the way that made the path of getting to eight figures take a lot longer than there needed to be. And to your point of the 12 deal mistakes that you're going to share with us, I could have my own 12 mistakes that I made They made the path of getting to eight figures take a lot longer than it needed to. But long story short, for our audience, those people that are running into plateaus of, you know, do you have what it takes to build an eight-figure brand? Uh, Do you have what it takes to be able to manage cash flow in a physical products business? If you have questions with that, go to ecombreakthrough.com. That's ecom with two M's to learn more. But today, I am super excited to introduce you all to Scott Dietz, We've already introduced him because he's been on the podcast previously. So he is our first part two uh, guest that we've had. So, you know, Scott, there's your award of the day already is uh, you're our first part two guest. Uh, But I am super excited. This is something we didn't have enough time in episode number one. And Scott has taken a lot of time to develop and actually prepared a presentation that he'll share with you guys today. Uh, about this kind of part two. But here's Scott's bio. Scott is the founder and CEO of the Northbound Group, a leading strategic finance and corporate development and sell-side M&A advisory firm focused on Amazon and e-commerce physical goods and SaaS businesses. Northbound has more than 30 full-time team members dedicated to the mission of helping e-commerce entrepreneurs achieve life-changing events. So, with that introduction, welcome to the show again, Scott Dietz. Hey, Josh, how you doing? No, it's great to be back. And uh, this was a lot of fun for me to work with our team to put the content together. So I'm, I'm looking forward to sharing it and, uh, and hearing your thoughts on it. And obviously, part of my own personal passion is I want to help every sell side entrepreneur uh, get what they deserve uh, 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 for their businesses. As you said, you work years and years. um, And as I always like to say, you work years and years to build a company. But if you don't do the last step right of exiting that company, uh, you're oftentimes leaving more than half of your money uh, you know, on the table because uh, for many physical goods and other sellers, uh, the money they actually take home from their businesses, uh, the bulk of it comes more than 50% comes when you exit, not the entire time that you're running the business because you're always reinvesting back in the business. So uh, real, uh, really looking forward to sharing the, the content with you and everybody else and, uh, and getting your feedback. Yeah, Scott, there's one thing I, I listened to one of your presentations at Camp Ecom. 
And the one thing that really stuck out to me that you really harped on a lot is if 50% of your kind of earning capacity is going to come from the exit of your business or your brand, why does everybody push off your, the planning for an exit until you say, hey, now I'm ready to exit my business. And it's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. There's some things that you should have gotten in place leading up into leading up to this point. And so I think the biggest takeaway that I got, and you had mentioned this, is that if you plan to exit your business, that's going to be your biggest liquidity event, most likely of your life. You should be spending a dedicated number of hours every single week on something that is going to be life changing for you instead of just assuming, hey, when I want to sell, uh, the magic just all happens at that time. And so that is what I'm super excited about what you're going to be sharing today, because I think a lot of these 12 mistakes are going to be things that people didn't necessarily need to make these mistakes had they planned better in advance. So, Scott, I'm super excited. If you want to go ahead and share your screen, let's dive into what you're referring to as the dirty dozen. Absolutely. Yes. And uh, I think you're absolutely right. Um, uh, the, the way my mentor taught me uh, was that the best time to figure out how you're going to get out of a business is before you even get into it, um, because it changes everything that you do when you're running your company. So for those of you that might be listening to this or watching this and saying, oh, I might not be exiting for another year, another two or even another three you know, I really want to reinforce that topic that um, uh, that you start planning for your exit early. Uh, and um, most people don't do it because they don't know what to focus on. And, and hopefully we'll give you some things that you can uh, by focusing on what the mistakes are uh, is a great training ground for focusing on what you then should be doing to get a maximum uh, uh, value for your company. So um, what we're going to do is we're going to break things down. Um, we call it the dirty dozen, um, uh, the top 12 deal mistakes that you might make and how to avoid them. And what I want to do is I'm going to break them down four, four, and four, four of them that you should be thinking about before you even go to market, four of them that people typically make during the process, and then four of them that actually people make after their deal closes. And I really want to put some focus on that because a lot of people tend to think that the deal is over when the first deal is signed, and that's absolutely not the truth. So. Um, let's get into it and I'll kind of walk through, um, uh, here's the list, uh, uh, of the three, um, we're going to go through a slide on each one. So I'm not going to read all of you, um, uh, read all of them right now, but a lot of them, as you can see, start with the word, not that you're not doing something that you should be doing. And that's, uh, by design when we look, um, and by way of background, at Northbound, we've done uh, about a half a billion dollars uh, of exits uh, in this space uh, over the last six years. So all of the things that we're talking about are real mistakes that our clients um, uh, ran into and that we had to work with them to still try and get a premium deal done. Uh, so this is real live things that you can learn from everybody else's mistakes going through the process, which ideally helps you to get the best exit for yourself. So on to number one. Category one, before you even go to market, the number one thing that people don't spend enough time uh, is eliminating what we call deal killers, okay? And for each one of these, you're going to notice, I don't like giving problems out without a solution. So for each one of these problems or mistakes, we'll outline a way to think about it. And in this one, we call it implementing a compliance and risk management plan. 
And what we mean by that is that there's a number of things that you could be building up in your company that are actually deal killers, and they tend to be in the four areas here. You aren't compliant with your products. Maybe you're selling to children and you don't have the right uh, certifications. They could be things relating to you don't own your trademark or your intellectual property in Europe, but you're selling in Europe. Um, Amazon health issues, you're getting a bunch of listings shut down or even your account shut down. And then oftentimes we see even with people that are entrepreneurs, they don't have all of their legal documentation uh, in place and maybe they have a partner um, or they lost a partner in the business. So the first thing to think about is building a compliance and risk management plan. Most Amazon and e-commerce sellers don't have one. And simply what you're doing here is identifying the risks to your business that could kill a deal and then working well before you go to market to eliminate them. Yeah. Scott, I think this is so important and this is definitely sets the foundation, right? Whether you are going to exit your business or not, this is like as a business owner, these four areas should already be on your radar, right? Are you compliant? Because another way that you could, we're, we're talking about life changing money. You want to talk about a way of having life-changing money taken away from you is being sued for millions of dollars, right? And so the product compliance, right? IP, trademarks, like these are just like foundational things. But to your point, Scott, you're saying that people are coming to you and they still haven't buttoned up these items. So I completely agree with you. Like this is foundational for business success. If you want to scale from seven to eight figures, You've got to have these covered, let alone if you're going to exit. Yeah, and, and that brings up one of the other adages I always like to say. Going through this list, what's good for selling a business is very often great for running a business effectively. Um, I recently spoke um, uh, at an e-commerce event, and I uh, asked for a show of hands, how many people in the audience have a risk management plan in place where they identify the risks of the business and what they're doing to manage it. And it was fewer than 5%. Um, uh, and so, yeah, thinking about what can go wrong and planning ahead is critical. So if we go from that, uh, and as you can see, we have a pyramid here that builds. We go from the deal killers. The next step up that we see is inaccurate financials. Um, and the solution that we have found that works best is holding what I call a monthly CFO meeting with yourself. Most um, uh, solopreneurs or small businesses don't have the ability to have a full-time CFO on staff. So they skip a critical part, which is every month looking at your historical accounting. Um, uh, and as you can see here, 90% of the challenge is typically in physical goods businesses in the cost of goods sold calculations. They don't validate their numbers monthly with the appropriate inventory subschedules and reviews. And they run in then to problems where they might be underreporting shipping and duties or other types of challenges in their numbers. So the way to think about it is that you should be looking at not only your profit and loss on, you know, whatever the tool is that you use every day, but actually looking at your books, not just your profit and loss, but your income statement, your balance sheet and your statement of cash flows. And I recognize for many sellers, they may not have ever looked at these. So the first time that you look at them, they will look. Yeah, like, what's the purpose of this? But trust me, with the sellers that we've worked with, when you implement this process and start looking at things like the change in your networking capital and other types of things, you'll really start to understand your business from the numbers uh, to a much better level. And 
we've oftentimes gone to market with sellers that had inaccurate financials. Um, I'm thinking of one about a year ago. Um, they were overstating their profits by over three hundred thousand um, dollars, wow. and at a multiple of uh, a five x multiple, it was a one point five million dollar adjustment in the price that they thought that they were going to get for their company. Uh, and uh, there's nothing like the feeling of waking up one day thinking that you're going to get X and then realizing that you're going to get $1.5 million less than that. Um, <laughs> that's not a very yeah. good feeling. And it all could have been solved by having accurate financials before you even go to market. Yeah. Scott, this this is such a fundamental, uh, just good business practice that we really need to focus on. Um, as we've had different accounting partners that have come on to the podcast I'm astounded in the number of entrepreneurs that are fearful of looking at their books. They don't understand the accounting reports. And so they just they they pull the sheets over their heads, so to speak, and they just kind of pretend that it doesn't matter. Right. Hey, what I see on Amazon, look, our, our revenue just keeps increasing. So surely the business is doing well. But implementing that monthly financial review is one of the most important business decisions that you can make. It's been that way for our business. You want to talk about identifying risks. You're able to see, hey, what costs are creeping up? Am I starting to hire too many team members? Is my overhead expanding unnecessarily while my revenue isn't expanding at the same rate? Is, you know, our advertising PPC clicks keep the cost per click keeps going up, right? So do your tacos, that overall, you know, return on your ad spend, does that keep increasing? Because if it is, that's eating away at your margin. Um, Scott, I'm curious, you know, accurate cogs is 90% of the challenge. That's what you talked about here. We have found that in our business. We have done a lot of cleanup in that aspect. We've been working with an accounting firm for five years at this point, but yet we discovered there were some inaccuracies <laughs> with the accrual side <laughs> reporting of COGS. And to me, I was like, how in the world did this happen with an experienced accounting firm? Is there any light, extra light that you want to shed onto what is the proper way, you know, that people should be accounting for COGS? Because I think this is the biggest adjustment that ends up needing to be made when it comes to, you know, negotiating deals. Yeah, absolutely. The way that I think about it is that um, having every one of your products having an accurate landed cost per unit that you track monthly on a subschedule. So if I've got 30 products in my business, I literally see 30 products down um, uh, uh, on the rows. And then each month I see a column of what the latest um, uh, 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 landed cost and landed cost for everybody is not just the product cost, it's the product cost plus the shipping and the duties and having that broken out and each month reviewing them. And if you had a large invoice come in, um, you know, updating that information and making sure that you, that's what I refer to as this appropriate subschedule um, and making sure that that ties off and that you're getting that information to your accountant um, uh, and that they're giving you feedback. So the second part of this is that if you're using oftentimes a bookkeeping service alone, they'll take your numbers and what you need to do is the second step is produce the subschedule sheet, but then you need to confirm for them that it matches the invoices 
that they're seeing and not just have them. Sometimes we see what will happen with bookkeeping firms is they'll just say, oh, you told me the number was $5, but they don't go look at the invoice and it was mm -hmm. actually six. So it's yep. very important that you you ask your, you know, your bookkeeping service, whether it's internal or external, to say, I need your help. You are not just an input the data service. You are a validate against my invoice service to make sure my cost of goods sold is accurate. Yeah. Scott, we could spend the next hour talking <laughs> just about cost of goods and how to track that. But I just want to reiterate this and we'll move to the next one. Number one, when you're a, when you're purchasing your your products right from the manufacturer, if you purchase in higher quantities, right, you're going to pay probably a, a smaller cost per good. But then next month or three months down the road, when you need to repurchase that inventory again, you might need a lesser quantity, which your the cost per unit will probably be a little bit higher. And in addition, we saw with COVID and, you know, the shipping rates and freight has just fluctuated up and down so many times, like all of that needs to be accounted for. And so that's what, you know, Scott's referring to when he talks about those subschedules and looking at on a monthly basis, you've got to reconcile that inventory and say, all right, what's this, the average cost of goods sold here for this product, for this particular uh, period of time, bring it all together. So long story short, if this is news to you and you haven't lifted up that hood before and you've just been coasting on whatever cost of goods that you provided to your accounting firm or accounting partner a year ago, you need to go back and, and take a look at that because this is really going to throw things off when it comes to selling and also just reading accurate financial statements for your business. Yep, absolutely. Okay, great. On to number three. So number three then translates from the historical accounting, um, uh, and it's called not understanding the future potential of your business. Um, and so now we're shifting um, uh, accrual accounting and looking at that. I call it, that's like looking in the rearview mirror of the car. But if you drive your car for any length of time, only looking in the rearview mirror, <laughs> you're probably going to crash into something. <laughs> it's critical that you understand the future potential of your business, and the solution is that you prepare what we call a worst base and best case forecast to present to yourself and to a buyer. So you shift from this historical accounting to forecasting, cash flow management, and scenario analysis. And the way to think about it is the base case is what you think is going to happen, okay? The worst case, also called, a buyer will call that the underwriting case, is what I call the take it to the bank. What do I know is going to happen even if all my new products don't go well? What is going to happen to this particular business? And that's something that they can, you know, loan against. And then the best case is what could we achieve together? Part of finding the right buyer is finding the buyer that has the most synergy. Giving a quick example, um, um, uh, we found a buyer for, a, 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 you know, it was an eight-figure transaction, but we found a buyer that was aggressively ready to invest in new product development was willing to commit to over a million dollars of capital to growing new products and was committed to never running out of stock. So was willing to double the amount of inventory because they knew that it was more important to stay in stock for the business than try and be really, really efficient with cash. Um, mm. th for that particular buyer, that allowed the seller um, to then invest uh, and double the number of products they could get to the market 
and over a two or three year period, they hit all of their contingent payments and their what's called roll to equity, um, the, the value of the shares that they didn't sell increased. So it's very critical for you to knew, know this in advance. And the other reason this is critical is because if you know what your business is going to do in the future, it even impacts when you should decide to sell because the timing of when you exit is critical and it's impossible for you to know when to sell um, if you don't know what the future growth of your business is, not just in the next 30 days, but over the next 6, 12, and 24 months. And most importantly, if you want to achieve that growth, how much cash is it going to cost you to be able to do that? So um, it's absolutely critical. You don't have to do you know libraries and libraries of Excel spreadsheets to do this, but you have to have some understanding of this in order to time your exit and frankly negotiate the right deal structure for your business. Yeah, I love that, um, Scott, because it also highlights what are some of the risks in your business, right? When you have to think about like, what's the worst case? How do you build upon and say, how do I remove those risk factors that, that affect that worst case scenario, right? And how do I Absolutely. solidify that? So I love that, Scott, great summary. And then my last point on this one is that many people don't do this because all they hear in the marketplace is that buyers only buy based on trailing 12 months earnings and mm. nothing could be further than the truth. They calculate the valuation based on your trailing history. But the reason I always say that they don't care, they only care about the future is that's the only profit that they're going to get. That's the only cash they're going to receive. What you made last year, you already spent <laughs> or you yep. reinvested in the business. So if you don't give them the future picture of the business, they're going to be happy to trade based on what you did last year. And if you're a growing company, you're leaving money on the table. Um, we've added hundreds of thousands and millions of dollars to deals by showing buyers, not just a, if I get money and I can double, but a real plan for the growth of the business and getting the buyer to sign off on that plan is critical to them paying a premium multiple for the business. Okay. This is now related to that is a lot of people have heard somebody say, oh, well, you want to maximize the profit and slow down the growth in the year before you exit. And again, that is a very dangerous or slippery slope. The solution is don't just look at your profit as the only variable or the initial valuation even as the only variable. You want to look at what we call your lifetime effective multiple or your lifetime effective valuation. And that is the sum total because for everybody that's listening to this, if you have a cash buyer that is paying 100% cash for your business, almost by definition, they are not your highest bidder because they're bearing all of the risk. And because they're bearing all the risk of giving you 100% cash up front, they are going to lower the multiple that they pay. So almost everybody is going to have some form of either rolled equity or stabilization payment or something that's contingent on the future success of the business. And if you slow down the business right before you exit, you have three different things that can happen. Number one, if you sell a business that has a new growth pipeline, you're going to maybe have a little bit less profit because you've been investing in the business, but you're oftentimes going to make more than up for that by having a higher multiple. So instead of uh, having a million dollars of profit that's not growing, where I might only get a three multiple, um, that's three million bucks. If I only have eight hundred thousand of profit, but I'm growing significantly, I can easily get a four multiple, and now I'm getting three point two million. So oftentimes, slowing it down doesn't even help you get more value. Um, 
but also having growth will make sure you hit your contingent payments, but it's this last one that's the most critical thing to recognize. Growth in the business dramatically increases the likelihood that you're going to sell this business at all. I can't tell you how many people have come to us. They slowed down the growth of the company, so the company is flat because they don't have any new products and the other products are already out there. And then you work really, really hard to try and exit it, and you can't find a buyer because every buyer has seen something that grew, then it flattened up. And what's the next thing that they think of after something grows and then flattened is going to happen, Josh? It's only going to go down. Yep. And who wants to, what they call it, catch a falling knife. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So you need to have growth in your pipeline before you go to market and exit. Scott, I think that's a super, super important like mindset shift that our listeners need to understand. Exiting a business is not, hey, when I run out of ideas of how to grow this business, that's when I'll exit the business. You're planning the exit of your business. And for example, you're going to go to exit and say, hey, buyer, I've got 18 months worth of new products that I'm going to launch. I know exactly what I'm launching. I know when I'm going to launch those. I need the capital to fund these. Here, I'm also going to be getting into international um, channel expansion. Here's the groundwork we've already laid. Um, things are already moving in the right direction. Like There's still a lot of meat on the bones, and I think that's a huge mindset shift. It's not, I've tapped out everything I can do. I'm not sure where to take this business next. Hopefully, a buyer finds some good ideas for this business. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. And my last comment before moving on to the next phase is um, I always like to say I hear a lot of times people will say to me, well, my business is going great and growing. I don't want to sell right now. And my answer back to them is that may be true, but always recognize there's only two times that you can sell your company. One, when it's going well, and two, when it's not going well and there's no buyers, <laughs> which brings you back exactly. to number one. So um Okay, so now we've talked about some things that you need to do before you go to market. Let's talk about for those of you who wonder, when I get into the deal process itself, what are some big mistakes that you see? Number one is this. They don't think from the buyer's perspective. And the solution might sound kind of vague, but this has been the most helpful sentence that's helped me in my negotiating and uh, in the, as I said, hundreds of millions of deals that we've done or dollars in deals. You always have to remember it's not what the seller is selling, it's what the buyer is buying. And the corollary to that is every time that you wanna make a statement about what you want, don't do that, but ask a question instead. And I'll give you an example. Many sellers will say to me, I wanna sell my business and I wanna leave within 90 days because I wanna go do something else in life. And they want me to tell the buyer that. But if I go tell the buyer that, I am focusing on what I'm selling, not on what they're buying, and I'm making a statement that's either costing me a negotiating chip when I could instead ask a question, um, uh, you know, you can tell we have a great business here. What is your impression of what would you like from the seller after the transaction? And oftentimes you'll find the buyer will say something like, oh, you know, we definitely would like them on for a few months. Um, you know, to make sure that everything goes smoothly and then we're going to incorporate it into our larger you know, overall uh, platform. OK, so if I had led with what I wanted, I, uh, I would have uh, done it the wrong way and maybe offended them. But once I realized that they're really buying the SKUs and they're buying the profitability, but they're not buying me the seller, then I can ask a question 
and I can structure the right deal. So every time that you think about saying something that you want out of a deal, focus first on how you can get the buyer what they want and what they're actually buying because that another buyer might look at it and say, hey, I'm buying Josh. I want you to stay on for a year and I'm willing to pay you a premium multiple for you to watch over this next holiday season. So this is just an absolutely fundamental perspective. And the last comment I'll make on it is just think about what you do with your uh, Amazon or e-commerce listings. When you go list your product, you don't, don't go tell people what you want as the seller. You show the benefits to them, and that's what gets them to buy. All you're doing with your business is think about your buyer, your ultimate buyer, is just like your ultimate customer of any of your products. Scott, I couldn't have said it any better. That was going to be my analogy is to say, how are you marketing your products online? You're not focused on you first. Hey, buy this product so I can go sit at the beach. That would be terrible. You want to promote what is the buyer? What's their intent? What are their goals? What are their dreams? What are their ambitions? Speak to them. And then that's where things come to fruition, right? So well said, Scott. Absolutely. Yeah. And whenever you get into a deal and you feel like you're at a log jam with your buyer, it's usually because you've lost track of this and you need to take a half a step back and start asking questions what is their problem? What are they trying to achieve? And then, uh, you know, leveraging folks like ourselves that have been through the process a lot of time, then coming up with creative solutions to see if there's a match. And if there's not, then there's no deal to be had. So related to that is most people think that the way that they get the premium valuation for their company is by showing the upside of the company. And while that's important, the thing you need to do first is you need to demonstrate the minimal downside and then show the upside. And it's due to a very key factor. Most people have heard something called ROI, return on investment, or what buyers will often call yield. And they'll go, oh, I wanna show them that I've got a higher yield. You can pay me five times earnings uh, for my multiple because I'm growing so much that you'll still earn 30 or 40% on your money. But the actual equation is yield divided by risk. And this is a, mm. a critical concept for people. So if you think about this as if my overall yield here is a 40% return on my money and my risk factor is a one, then it's a 40 divided by one. But if I feel another business over here is twice as risky, even if that one might be a 50% yield, if it's a two on the risk, 50 divided by two is 25% risk adjusted yield. So most sellers have, you know, don't think a lot about what the analysis are that the buyers are going through, but if you think about it this way, the easiest way to change the overall number isn't to increase the growth only, it's to decrease the denominator and get them closer to thinking that wow, no matter what happens in this business, I've got so many new products coming to market. I'm in a protected uh, environment. It's a clean company. There's no deal killers. I think my, my chance of getting my money back out of this is like 80 or 90% at a minimum. That gets you a premium valuation. And what costs you a premium valuation is when they say, wow, this thing could double, but it could also get cut in half. That's going to keep those multiples low. So most people don't spend enough time explaining the risks to a buyer and then demonstrating how low the risk is in their particular business. Scott, do you have any specific examples that you might be able to share um, that might be like 
what types of risks, right? We talked about Amazon account health risk, right? That's one thing. Um, we talked about not having your trademarks and things like that. But what are some of those other like risk factors that you feel like sellers could be actively trying to mitigate? Yeah. So I'll give two answers to that one general and one specific. The general rule of thumb is that every new question a buyer has to ask when you explain your business to them, the price goes down. So mm -hmm. you want to think about being able to explain everything up front so they can see the whole package and see what it is. And I'll give you a great example of risk. If you are thinking of exiting in uh, 12 months from now, making sure that no matter what, you don't have any stock outages and you get the capital financing in place to show the run rate of the business while it has stock in place. Because every time there's a stock outage, a buyer has to ask the question, why did that happen? And it either happened because mm -hmm. you didn't plan accordingly or that this business is so up and down and volatile that it's going to be a lot to handle. So buyers love boring businesses. And so being able to show the ability, I kind of say that in jest because everybody wants something that's kind of fun, but flashy and volatile is not what buyers are looking for. So there, if you just think about the risk of your business, um, demonstrating that you've been able to maintain a, a similar price for a longer period of time, demonstrating that you've been able to maintain a, um, a, a stock in inventory, demonstrating that you've been able to maintain rank. So the way to think about it is just to look at your P&L and look at what are the numbers that could change that a buyer would be most afraid of them changing and then designing a risk mitigation plan that shows them demonstrated evidence of why they don't need to fear those things. And that's in addition to all of the compliance things that we talked about before. But those are some specific examples of making sure to show that your business is not risky. And then also from an ownership standpoint, making sure that you have all of your you know, documents in order. Um, all of your suppliers are people that you've worked with that are reputable, um, uh, those types of things. Awesome. I think those are some great points and great examples. Okay. Number seven, right? Yeah, number seven. Now, this may seem to some of you, it might be biased because obviously I'm a professional deal team uh, uh, person, but I'll say it to you in this sense. With even as many deals as I have done in my life, um, I sold my first company um, uh, 21 years ago, um, uh, and my investment banker at the time uh, got more than three times the price when I tried to do it myself. So that tells you what an idiot I almost was. <laughs> um, but I wouldn't even sell my company myself, even though I'm in that business. And there's a number of reasons why. The number one reason why is that your job, as you can see in the solution, is to continue leading your company. And if you have to lead your deal and your company, something is going to get what's called short shrift. You're either not going to spend enough time leading the deal or you're not going to spend enough time leading the company and the growth of the company is going to suffer. And there's nothing that buyers love to do more than renegotiate for a lower price if they notice that your company is struggling right before you go to the deal. So mm. bringing a professional team, and this is not somebody that you want to be, you know, quote unquote rookies. You wanna have an independent representative that's your deal quarterback. They can push on buttons that you can't. You wanna have uh, a, a, not just your general lawyer, but an M&A expert lawyer. You wanna have a transactional tax account that gives advice on the deal. 
You want to have somebody that helps you with due diligence and get you all of the uh, schedules that you need to send to the buyer. You want to have a personal wealth management planner. And then if you have key staff that you want to bring into the deal or let them know about it, you got to step up the bar with them and say, hey, I need you to help run this company while we're running the deal. If you don't have that last one, that's okay. But think of this as presiding your team. And if you don't do this, it is the uh, uh, the age old statement of you're bringing a knife to a gunfight because you can certainly bet that a buyer is bringing all of the different experts on their side to the table. Yeah, I think this is so important. And, and so many think of how do I save money, right? And they see, oh man, if I'm exiting for $10 million and they're taking X percent of all of this, like that's a lot of money. That's hundreds of thousands of dollars, right? But the amount of downside there is of not having those experts in place is much higher, just as you noted. Um, your multiple can go up um, and also just helping prepare you. So I cannot expound upon this any further than you did here, Scott, because this is just such an important aspect. Like, do not try to do this alone or else you will just kind of exactly. get wrecked. You'll get wrecked by a buyer. Uh, they're going to take advantage of you. You're going to get a lower multiple. You think you're saving money. At the end of the day, you're not. And it's probably a lot more stressful for you having to navigate that all alone. And on top of that, your business has probably started to go down because of that. Okay. And number eight, the last one in this section is not locking down a detailed letter of intent. You have to recognize the solution is that all major terms in your LOI need to be done there because that's the last chance you have to negotiate with true leverage before you go exclusive. So let me explain what this means. When you sign a letter of intent, it is the stage after you've agreed verbally that you've got a match between yourself and uh, a buyer. And now before you go write what's called the final legal agreements, the asset purchase or the stock purchase agreement, you are going to write a shorter document that is called the letter of intent, which is non-binding. But it basically says in the next 60 days, we intend to close a particular deal. Oftentimes, the mistake that we see is that people will sign an LOI with a lot of gray area, but every LOI that I've ever seen signed in this industry is a exclusive LOI, which means that during that 60-day period, once you sign an LOI with this buyer, you can't take in other offers. And the reason why that is is because the buyer is not going to invest $100,000 to $150,000 of due diligence only for you to then walk across the street and sell to somebody else. So if you think about that, the time to get all of the detail as much as you can specified out is while you still have multiple buyers at the table and multiple LOIs in hand. So the key things you wanna be thinking about is number one, you wanna give them what we call the pre-LOI due diligence packet. So we always like to prepare materials for them and say, hey, before we go under LOI, this is what our numbers are. This is what our profitability is. If you have any yellow or red flags in the business, maybe your Amazon account got shut down um, you know, eight months ago, you let them know what it was, how you resolved it. And most people tend to just generally out of embarrassment or whatever reason, they don't want to put the hard things on the table early, but you're the one who loses if you don't do that. So whenever we help you go through an LOI, we'll always work with a lawyer to make sure uh, that we get all of the legal terms in there. We'll get things in there such as um, 
what are the fundamental warranties and representations you're making about the business. We'll get in there what the price is, what the terms are, when the cash will move money, um, and a number of other things. And the, the critical thing for you to understand at this level is don't just take the buyer's LOI and think that that's a deal done. You want to negotiate when you have the leverage, which is before you sign that LOI. Awesome. I think that's super important. It kind of goes back to what we previously talked about, right, is being prepared, being upfront, mitigating a lot of those issues, but understanding the importance of, you know, negotiating prior to the LOI is so key. So I love that, Scott. Let's go to number nine. Sure. And so now what I'm going to do is I'm going to actually take a leap from the LOI to you got your deal done. And I did that intentionally. And the reason I did that is it's a whole nother topic to talk about the negotiating of your purchase agreement. The only thing I'll say about it is that you're going to probably, even if you do a detailed LOI, there will probably still be 30 or 40 different things that you're negotiating between the LOI and the purchase agreement. It's out of scope for this discussion, but that's why you need that professional deal team to help you. But now let's talk about you get your deal done. And for most sellers, what they think is they think, oh, after the deal is completed, I'm done. And the, act, the, the actuality is, is there's still a lot of mistakes that could be made here. The number one mistake is not forming a positive buyer relationship. And you might say, well, wait a minute, I sold the business to them. Who cares whether I get along with them or not? And here's why it's so important. You want to see this as an opportunity for you to learn how you can contribute to a larger uh, organization. Now, that's one major reason why you want an independent negotiator, because if you've had to negotiate really, really tough, there's no other way to say it, is that there's a little bit of negativity that can get built up during that process. You want them, I always say, you want, I always want the buyer to like you, Josh, but they have to respect me, the advisor, okay? But you're going to want to work with them after the sale, even if it's only two or three months or if it's two or three years. The second reason you want to do that is because you've got money at stake. So stay involved and advocate for decisions to help make it happen. But the last one is what most people don't think about. If you have a good relationship with your buyer, the, the likelihood of any post-acquisition lawsuit will go down dramatically if they see that you're willing to help this be a success. Most of the time when people get in lawsuits, if the business doesn't perform after, you know, let's say you sell the business and the business goes down, how often is a buyer going to blame themselves or how often are they going to blame you? And the answer is, if you're there actively all the way, part of what you're doing, it isn't about how much money you get on day one, it's how, how much money you get to keep over the lifetime of the deal. And yes, there's always going to be an above zero chance that you might get sued if they find out something about the business that was different than what they thought. Maybe there was a, a, an IP complaint in Europe that they didn't find or something along those lines. So it's very important for you to stay engaged with your buyers to mitigate that risk. Yeah, Scott, I think overall, like as we go through these mistakes, one thing I, I see a common pattern and trend of is that, look, when you're trying to exit your business, this isn't you saying for the most part, this isn't I just want to sell my business and just completely walk away. I'm, I'm just not interested in the rest of this. And there might be some dead bodies here or there. I'm not going to disclose those. They don't need to know about these. It's all good. They'll be able to navigate around this. Like when it comes to exiting a business, you need to be transparent. You need to 
be at, like actually care about the success of the, your brand moving on with the next buyer. Um, typically, you're going to have uh, future upside or you should uh, with whatever deal you structure or some stability payments as well that you should be incentivized to see this continue to succeed. So it's all kind of just best practices, like actually care and show up. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, and, and many people, I like to bring these up because a lot of these, when you hear them, they sound obvious, but if you aren't told them, you have, like you said, this, uh, this thought of, Oh, I can sell. And then I, you know, I want to, I want to kick back because you will be tired by the time you get through a process. But it, the, you know, the, the, the concept to think under is that if you think with their lens in mind, you're also helping yourself. And if we go to number 10, then a lot of people, once they get the initial deal done, there's a lot of legal documents moving around and they don't create um, what we call or what we can build for our clients. It was called a deal tracker. It's a simple spreadsheet that gives the dates and the amount of money that you expect when you're going to get things to do what I call project manage your deal after it's completed. So in almost every deal that you do, if you're in physical goods, you're going to base the, the value of the company on what's called estimated inventory, but you um, are going to then reconcile it with the actual inventory because it's a moving target every hour, obviously, as you're selling product. There's going to be a future contingent payment in six months, 12 months, or, or even two years later. And there's going to be things like, when do my general promises about the businesses expire? Do they expire after a year or after two years? Well, it's very critical to know that because that's when you know that you're sort of in the clear. And then there's a number of things in the uh, in the purchase agreement that are specific things that have to happen by specific dates. So, for example, if a buyer doesn't true up to actual inventory within 60 days, but you think that they underreported it and you don't uh, take the 10 days that's in the agreement to dispute what they sent you, you literally create what I call a footfall in tennis. Um, uh, where you can no mm. longer fight on that particular term. So it's absolutely critical that you work with your advisory team to understand the deal and think of it just like any other project that you project manage. This one probably still will have hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars at stake. It's worth it for you. Um, and, you know, one of the things that I say when you, when you work with Northbound, we ride along and stay with all of our sellers well after their transaction to help them with this area because it's so critical that you get it right. And otherwise you can literally have one little thing that you uh, uh, misstep on that can cost you hundreds of thousands of dollars. Yeah, Scott, I think this goes back to the earlier point in the mistake when people try to do it alone. Could you imagine tracking all of the tiny little details in your purchase agreement and uh, you know make sure you're truing up inventory after you have 10 days to come back to us with any feedback or else it's it's history, right? There are going to be so many little nuances like that. Try, you know, imagine trying to track that. So, again, another another reason to have a professional team on your side that's been through this process. They know what to look out for. They are going to help you stay on top of those things so that you don't lose out on, again, hundreds of thousands of dollars. Yep, absolutely. Um, okay, number 11 then. Not staying on board to make sure you hit your contingent payments. And now this one's going to be a little bit controversial because everybody has in their mind that the thing that they're going to go do after they sell their business is I always say, go hit the beach. Okay. Now, the rule of thumb that I always like to do is if you have a two-year earnout period, 
you want to make sure that you're around and involved on some level for one year to 18 months or 50 to 75% of the time that you have money coming in. And the reason is, um, and I'm sure there's a lot of people out there that are listening to this that heard about somebody that sold to a buyer or an aggregator that then the business went down and they didn't hit their earnout. Okay. Now I'm happy to say at Northbound, we tend to negotiate things a little bit differently that we've really been able to mitigate that issue by using uh, a different types of transaction structure. But the reality is, is if your business doesn't continue to succeed, you're going to find that you're losing money along with your buyer losing money as well. And the second point here is that most people think that they don't want to stay around because they're imagining their life like it is today. I call it the you're the do everything entrepreneur working 60 to 70 hours a week. But what the buyer wants to do, remember, it's not what the seller's selling. It's what the buyer is buying. They want to buy your strategic brain. So imagine if you could design a role to where you can continue to be the strategic leader of your brand for some period of time. You have more capital than you've ever had available to you. And you could get off all of the things you don't like, like maybe managing logistics, managing Amazon cases, and a bunch of other things. It's a really unique time to ensure that you get maximum value for your company. But don't most of the time people don't want to do it is they're thinking that I'm going to work 60 hours a week. Oftentimes, you're maybe only sticking around for 10, 15 hours a week. But just by staying involved and making sure that the buyer doesn't, A, make bad decisions, um, but B, that they continue to see the opportunity. And every business has a scarce amount of resources. So the more you can be the squeaky wheel to get more good things going for you, it's worth it for you and it protects you. And it's oftentimes a very different experience because they know if they ask you to do everything like you're doing today, you're just going to up and quit. So think about it in that light and recognize that if you have money on the table, it's worth it for you to stick around 50 to 75% of that time, if not 100%. But a lot of times, if you've got a, a two-year earnout um, or a year earnout by month nine or month 18, the cake is pretty much baked if you really, too, just want to get out of uh, you know having to work full-time. Yeah. Scott, again, I think that's another big mindset shift for people when they're exiting a brand, not just saying like, hey, I walk away and the next day I'm, I'm just at the beach, like you said, right? That's that's not the best way to go about this. And it's not the best way to approach exiting your brand. Again, be invested in the long term, be invested in the success of that buyer. And again, everything will just grow to a much better fruition if you continue to stay involved. Yep, absolutely. Which brings us to the last of the dirty dozen, number 12. And this one is the most personal uh, of all of them. Uh, and it's not taking your time to figure out your next adventure. Um, and the solution is, is you need to recognize that you're now going to be seen in a new light in the entrepreneurial community. Um, uh, so you need to take some time off to enjoy your accomplishment. And many sellers will jump right back into something familiar. I hear it all the time. Oh, I'll start up another Amazon brand or I'll start up another e-commerce brand. And the thing that you want to think about is um, uh, that you are now, a, as you can see here in the last point, you're a proven commodity. And many investors like to bet on the jockey, not the horse, is the analogy. And so mo most people will think that they need to take their own money and start up their next venture when they don't need to. 
when I started up my next venture after I sold my first company, um, uh, it was a software company, I was able to bring in seven figures of capital into my company, even though it didn't exist on anything other than on paper, because I found an investment partner that wanted to invest in me because they know that I knew how to build a business toward an exit. And so it's very important to me that everybody you know, doesn't just jump back into the first thing, but take some time. I see this mistake all the time is you go right back into something familiar. You think you have what's called the Midas touch that you can never fail. So you put all of the money that you work so hard to get into your exit um, to put in your uh, your bank account or your investment account. And now you're putting that money right back out again into your next venture, which might be risky. So really think about whether or not you want to even use your own money or you bring in an investor into your next idea because you're now the brains. You can partner with the money and make sure that it might be something completely different. Um, I was in the, the B2B software um, uh, business, and then I shifted to B2B digital marketing, and then I shifted to being an Amazon seller myself for three years, and now I've shifted into helping achieve life-changing exits uh, 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 for people very different businesses, but each one has gotten more rewarding than the last one because they're new challenges in life. And if you only have so many years that you want to be an entrepreneur, don't just think that your job is to be successful at four e-commerce businesses. Now, maybe that is your path, but do it consciously and take enough time and meet with enough people. Um, you'll be in a different um, uh, community or sphere once you have capital and you'll be meeting with different types of people. Take advantage of that and don't jump too soon right back into something familiar. Scott, I love that. For me, I, I just experienced a mindset shift too. When I consider exiting, it's not, hey, now I've got all this money that I could go invest in a new product brand or something like that or to go start a new business. I love that analogy of like, Hey, you're the jockey, right? And they want to bet on you, right? You could go find investors to go fund your next deal. Let your money that you just earned go work for yourself. And that that now becomes a super high floor for you for the rest of your life, right? That you don't need to work the rest of your life if you don't want to. But hey, obviously you find a lot of passion through work. So go do that through other people's money. And again, you're you're hanging out in different groups after you've probably exited a business than you ha had before. And so the amount of capital that you can have access to is much greater. Scott, yeah, we, we helped a seller last uh, to put a fine point on that. We helped a seller rather than um, owning a hundred percent of their business, they owned 85% of the business, but we helped them get $1.5 million of capital to mm -hmm. grow it. Well, I'd much rather not have to put the 1.5 million in myself and own 85% of something than have 100% of it and have to put all of that money back into your next venture. So, yeah, that's a, a very real life example. And so for everybody out there, I've really enjoyed going through these 12. And if you think about these solutions, you'll be a smarter seller uh, and, and on your way to getting a premium valuation for your company. I love this, Scott. Scott, this has been amazing. You have shared some fantastic strategies and insights as it relates to exiting a brand. I think this brings it all full circle here. You should take these 12, you know, uh, mistakes that other people have made when exiting their business, and you need to consciously plan them into your business today, right? Start from number one and start mitigating your risk. 
start with number two and continue. Not only is that going to help you build a better business overall, but it's going to help you have a much greater exit. And again, if, if you are not actively doing something every week to exit your brand, which is going to be your biggest liquidity event in your life, then you're making a mistake right there. So Scott, if people want to reach out to you, they want to learn more. They didn't get enough from this podcast and they need to ask you some extra questions. Where could they find you at? Yeah, absolutely. Um, as I, I hope everybody can tell, this is my life passion. Uh, I want to help every entrepreneur get what they deserve. So if you have individual questions, um, you can go to our, you know, uh, northboundgroup.com is our website, northboundgroup, just all three words together.com. And if you want to reach me specifically, or if you're interested, we do a lot of exit strategy planning work with people um, well before that they're thinking of exit. If you want to have any discussions around that, or maybe you just are stuck and you're in the middle of a deal and you want to have a second input, I'm always here um, and reach me at my first name, Scott at northboundgroup.com. Uh, and uh, make sure to you know uh, hear what your situation is, and uh, you know I, I'm here to help as a as a resource on your side. Or if you're thinking about uh, exiting now or in the future, we're here to help you as well. So yeah, this has been fun. This has been uh, a lot of new content that I haven't put out before, so it was really fun to put together, Josh. Scott, thanks again for putting this together. I definitely encourage all of our guests if this is something that piques your interest reach out to Scott. He's a wealth of knowledge. So Scott, thanks again for your time and coming on the show today. Yeah, you're welcome, Josh. It was great talking with you. Take care. Thank you for listening. Visit ecombreakthrough.com for more information. If you've enjoyed today's episode, the best way you can show your appreciation is by clicking the subscribe button and quickly leaving a review. See you again next time.